Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, as we return to our study in Mark this morning. Mark, chapter 3. Our text this morning will be beginning in verse 20 and down through the end of the chapter. And before we read it this morning, I just want to give us a a brief run-up to to the text and to where we are in this wonderful gospel, this record of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 1, Mark tells us what he is doing in this gospel. He says it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's presenting Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the sovereign ruler, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as Mark moves into the ministry of Christ after introducing him through the fulfillment of John the Baptist and the preliminary preparations in the wilderness, in the baptism of Christ and in the wilderness, in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, Mark gives us a summary of Christ's mission. He says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so that frames the entire gospel, all of the accounts that we have throughout Mark's gospel fill out Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. The rule of God is established in Christ. And to find refuge from the wrath of God, to find refuge from the condemnation for sin that every person deserves, having offended a holy God, having been born with the imputed guilt of Adam, being sinful and being sinners, there is only one place to find refuge, and it is in Jesus Christ. And so he calls He calls the people, He calls you today to repent and believe the gospel. As Mark goes on, he presents the reality of Christ's authority. He calls His disciples and they leave everything. He casts out demons. He cleanses lepers. We see Him in chapter 2 being confronted by the religious leaders as they question His authority to forgive sin, as they question His interactions with sinners. But Jesus consistently and rightly asserts His authority that He indeed has the prerogative to forgive sins that He is the Son of God, that He came to call sinners and not to call the self-righteous to Himself. He came to establish a rule on earth, a rule in men's hearts that would one day culminate with His return. And so as we come to chapter 3, 
And in the passage before us today, we, we find some responses to Christ. And Mark writes his gospel to first century Christians who are dealing with the adversities of following Christ in a world that hates Christ. They're dealing with following Christ while they deal with their own flesh and they, they need to be reminded to look to Christ and to be reminded of what Christ has done, the power of Christ and the authority of Christ in their lives. And so as Mark recounts Christ's ministry, he recounts interactions that people had with Christ and responses that people had toward Christ. And that's what we find in this passage. There are, there are three major groups of people that are responding to Christ in this passage. And we'll see that in a moment as we read through it. I just want to orient us to the passage even before we read it. In verses 20 and 21, and in verse 31, we see Jesus' family, his family. And they know Christ, they're responding to Christ, and yet uh, they're responding according to their own ideas of what Christ should do. In verses 22 through 30, Christ deals with his foes, his enemies. And they also respond to Christ by attributing his work to Satan. But then at the end of the passage, Jesus looks around to those who are gathered, and he says in verse 34, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. These are the true followers of Jesus, those who have been conquered by Christ, those whose wills are being subjected by Christ to do the will of his heavenly Father. And so let's read this passage beginning in verse 20 and note what is happening as people respond to Christ and Christ responds to them. Mark sets off a new section by a new location. Verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man 
and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. When a king takes the throne, family, foes, and followers are defined by their fidelity to the crown. Mark, again, establishes Jesus is the Son of God. He is the supreme ruler, and his followers, his true followers, submit to him. The theme for the message is taken from that last verse, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And it's a very simple theme. Christ's followers submit to God's will. Christ's followers submit to God's will. Mark emphasizes Christ's authority to call people to himself and Christ's authority to subdue our wills to his with a, an interesting method that he actually employs often in, in his gospel. You know, in, in the first century, punctuation was a little bit different than what we're used to today. Uh, we use parentheses and semicolons and all kinds of other uh, mechanisms to, to divide up our words when we want to make a point or when we want to set something apart uh, from something that has come previously or something that follows. The way that Mark does this is by often giving us bookends that encompass a, a central uh, record. And this is what happens here. In verses 20 and 21, Mark introduces Christ's family, those that are close to Christ. And then in verse 31, he comes back around to Christ's family when he says, His mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And so those are kind of the bookends that set this particular passage apart. And then in the central part, you notice there's no uh, change in, in the setting. In verse 20, it says he went home and a crowd gathered. And apparently, here in verse 22, the scribes are, are part of this conversation uh, because when we get to the end of the passage, the crowd is still there in verse 32, and... Jesus looks at those who are sitting around and identifies them as the ones doing the will of God. So the whole account here is taking place likely in Peter's house in Capernaum. 
And just so that we can see again how, how the passages are marked off, often in narrative, in chapter 4, verse 1, we do have a change of location. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. So there's a, a, a new account being introduced to the life of Christ. And so this is informally called, we call it the sandwich method, right? Two pieces of bread and then something in the middle. There's two accounts, two corresponding accounts, and then there's something in the middle, and that, that sets apart and, and informs how we approach this passage. So what do we find in this passage? Well, we find, first of all, opposition to Christ. Opposition to Christ. So as we think about the theme, Christ's followers submit to God's will, Christ's followers will recognize opposition to Christ. Will recognize opposition to Christ. Family and foes of Christ both defined Christ on their terms. Look at verse 21. His family is coming as there are crowds coming to Jesus because of his popularity. They're concerned, but they say about him, they go to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Well, that's, that's a shocking thing to say about the Son of God. But this is what they're doing. They're defining Christ according to their terms, according to what they see happening in front of them. And we'll come back and fill this out in just a moment. But if you move your eyes down to verse 22, the scribes came down from Jerusalem, were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And then in verse 30, Again, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So both Christ's family and his foes are defining Christ according to their terms. And, and the opposition that is reflected in these statements they are saying about Christ, that kind of opposition to Christ reflects the human condition in its corruption. Even for those who, who have an affinity for Christ, and, and within his family, obviously his mother is, is a follower of Christ, yet there is, there is within our nature, within our fleshliness, and ultimately, for those outside of Christ, within our rebellion, a resistance to the fullness of who Jesus is. These responses are reflecting the human condition in its corruption. When we're confronted by Christ in His fullness and in the glory of who He is, there, there's something inside of us that says, no, I don't want Christ in that way. I want him in my way. And the problem, of course, is that if you can define Christ, then Christ is accountable to you. If you can define Christ, then Christ is accountable 
to you. And this is what is at the root of every false religion, no matter how close it gets to the gospel, no matter what kind of terminology it uses that overlaps with Scripture, at the heart of false religion is a determination to define Christ so that Christ is then accountable to the person. And you think about this, if, if I can define what Christ is, then I can define how many good works I have to do to be acceptable to Christ. Right? This is the heart of false religion. And it is opposition to Christ, no matter what shape or form that it takes. And Christ deals with this. He handles it. And we have the record of, of these responses of people so that we can recognize it in our own hearts when the demands of Christ, as we seek to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Him, when the demands of Christ become so demanding that we want out, we need to recognize our propensity to impose our wills on Christ. And it helps us to also understand why people are so resistant to Christ in their rebellion. But let's consider these two groups that oppose Christ. Those who submit to God's will, true followers of Christ, recognize this kind of opposition to Christ. First of all, we see an opposition of imposition. In other words, Christ's family is seeking to impose their will on Christ. Notice again in verse 21, and out of concern for Christ, but yet look at the response. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. All right, so his family has some ideas about what should happen in Christ's ministry. This is reminiscent of what happened when Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And, and he was there for three days answering uh, questions, and, and he told his parents, I must be about my father's will. It must be about my father's business. Well, here he is. He's about his father's business, and yet his family wants to seize him. They want to take control of him and remove him from this place because in the vernacular, they think he's gone berserk. That's what's behind that word. They think he's become a madman. He's, he's so engrossed in his ministry that he's left his senses and that is their assessment of Christ. They, they see what's happening and their assessment is he's out of his mind. We need to intervene. We need to interpose our will on him because we know what the ministry of Christ ought to look like. We're his family. We're the ones that are near him. And if you go to the end of the passage in verse 31, we see the idea repeated his mother and brothers came 
And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, so they they heard what was happening. They went to seize him because they said he's out of his mind, and now they've come to the place where Christ is. And they're calling him, they're seeking him. And this word, the word in verse 32, they're seeking you, that's a word that occurs several times in Mark. We've already seen it back in chapter 1. So turn, if you will, back to verse chapter 1, verse 36. This is after Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's been healing people. He's becoming quite popular. He goes out to a desolate place to pray, and Simon, verse 36, Simon and those who are with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. The word that we're interested in is that word searched for him. Same word that we find in chapter 3, your mother and brothers are seeking you. Now, the interesting thing about that word is it's also translated to persecute in other places in Scripture. And so this isn't just trying to find somebody to know where they are. There's, there's actually behind it there, a, 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 an attempt to find, to impose your will on that person. They're seeking Jesus. Why? Well, we've been told to seize him because they think he's berserk, right? So they're imposing, they're attempting to impose their will on the ministry of Christ. They're attempting to fence Christ in, to define Christ according to what their assumptions are of Christ, and what we find as we, as we think about this is that here, you know, here's his family, his mother and his brothers. Again, these, these aren't people that hate him. His mother has been highly favored. Remember when the angel came and announced that she would bring forth Christ? They love him, and yet they haven't learned submission to him. Proximity to Christ does not guarantee submission. His brothers, even at this point, don't believe in him yet. They will. James will turn to Christ. But they haven't learned to submit to Christ. And so proximity to Christ does not guarantee submission to Christ. And the outcome of that is then an attempt to serve Christ on your own terms. They're trying to serve Him. They're trying to care for Him. But it's on their terms. They're imposing their will on Christ. When we think about that, you know, it's sobering how easy it is to slip into that mindset, to become prescriptive in what we think following Christ should look like, to become prescriptive in what we think Christ should do for us. No, it's not that way. 
true followers of Christ submit to God's will. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Right? This is the attitude of true followers of Christ. But as family, again, and and showing the human condition, the tendencies of our heart, we find an opposition of imposition. As we move into verse 22, we find a much more malicious response to Jesus. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So we're moving now from an opposition of imposition to an opposition of indictment. An opposition of indictment. The religious leaders, notice that they come down from Jerusalem. So Christ's popularity, what he's doing, has reached Jerusalem, and now it seems as though there's actually an official delegation of scribes that come to confront Christ to deal with this person, and the official position is the works that Christ does, he does by the power of Satan, by the power of the Lord of Dung, by the power of the prince of demons. They're indicting Christ for being an ally of Satan, for being an instrument of Satan. They're taking the pure, holy Son of God and attempting to besmear his reputation by connecting him to the most heinous of beings, the devil himself. They're indicting, they're indicting the Son of God for being in league with Satan. It's unconscionable. It's awful. And it shows, again, the depth of depravity and the strength of rebellion and the hearts that are darkened by sin and the hearts that refuse to recognize the Son of God. That, that there can be a point where people see the works of Christ. They admit that, that He has done incredibly powerful things, and yet they say, and it's because He's in league with Satan. It's an opposition of indictment against Christ. In any unchecked opposition, any unchecked opposition to Christ will lead to unreasonable conclusions. There might be some here this morning and and you're resisting Christ. You've heard the gospel week in and week out. You know who Christ is, and yet you resist, and, and, and you think, you think that you can do it and survive. You think that you can even control the level of your resistance, if we could say something so ridiculous. But what this passage is demonstrating is that an unchecked opposition leads to unreasonable Conclusions. Why? 
because those who walk in darkness know not over what they stumble. And it is a serious thing to reject the Son of God. It is an eternally serious thing to reject Christ, the Messiah, the one who came to proclaim the kingdom of God, the one who is the King of kings and who is the Lord of lords. And these Jews, they are not denying the power. They are simply reassigning the power to be that from the pit of hell. He casts by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. We're going to see how Jesus deals with this in a moment, but right now we're just focusing on, on the actual opposition. The darkness of the corrupted, guilty human heart is so deep and so thick that even those witnessing the miracles of Christ are incapable of believing just based on seeing miracles. Witnessing the miracles fails in and of itself to generate submission. They've seen them, and they're simply reattributing them to Satan. In, in Luke chapter 16, you remember that the rich man was pleading with Abraham to send back Lazarus to his brothers. And he said, if they see someone rise from the dead, then they'll believe. And the response was, no. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. This is the sobering condition of, of our heart. That even in the face of miracles, and in, in this case, seeing these in person, it fails to generate submission to Christ. And, and, and the outcome of this kind of darkness and the outcome of, of this kind of unbelief and resistance and rebellion to the Son of God ultimately leads to aligning yourself with Satan against Christ. In other words... You align yourself with the thrice-defeated foe of Christ. He was defeated in the garden. He was defeated at the cross, and he will be defeated at the coming of Christ. And by, by pushing away Christ, you align yourself with the thrice-defeated foe of God Almighty and of Christ our Savior. And this is what informs Jesus' final indictment of these people. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. They had aligned themselves with Satan. And so Christ's indictment of them, Christ's verdict of their soul is that they, they would be with Satan for eternity. And you see that in verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And again, we'll come back to this. 
we've seen the, rec- the opposition to Christ, right? True followers of Christ submit to God's will. They recognize opposition to Christ. But what we find then in Christ's response to the religious leaders, we find Christ's overcoming power. Christ's overcoming power. Let's read Jesus' words. He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Christ came to vanquish Satan. Christ responds with unquestionable power and authority. And and so, as Christ followers submit to God's will, we recognize opposition to Christ and, and we're able then to rest in the overcoming power of Christ. So let's consider the overcoming power of Christ in which we rest. We first see that Christ corrects in wisdom. Christ corrects in wisdom. Christ is so long-suffering. He is so gentle, even, even to those who are making unreasonable, heinous indictments against, against Him. Verse 23, He called them to Him and said to them in parables. Here here are Christ's enemies. These are are the ones that will ultimately be, be behind putting him to death. And he calls them to him. And he speaks to them in a way where he's teaching them. He's teaching them in parables. And just a note, we'll see this as we move on through Mark, Parables are not always used to obscure the truth. Here Jesus is using parables to help and and to clarify the unreasonableness of the indictment against him. He corrects in wisdom, and and of course this is fulfillment of what Isaiah says of Christ in in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. We have a wonder of a counselor. And so in wisdom, Christ corrects. He calls his enemies to him and he uses a parable. And it's very simple. A kingdom that's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Right? When, when, you, have, when you have subterfuge within a kingdom, when you have betrayal, when you have divided houses, it will fall. It will fall. A kingdom, a house, 
And so, verse 26, if Satan has risen against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Pharisees, scribes, you officials of the of the Jewish religion, you have misinterpreted what is happening. This is not a record or a an account of Satan. This is an account of Satan's downfall. He is coming to an end. Satan is divisive, right? He longs to divide even the church. This is why the unity of the church is so precious. It's what we strive for. Satan is divisive, and yet he cannot be divided. And so even within what Satan does, even within the destruction that he promotes to be divisive, he is still utterly subjected to the natural law of God. He himself cannot survive being divided. No, this is not from Satan. This is from God. And it is, it is foretelling his end, the end of Satan. Satan is not divided. And what Jesus says about the strong man in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. His words, Jesus' words, indicate that Satan is not divided. Satan is defeated. The strong man has come. The one who is mightier than Satan has come. And he is not in league with Satan. He has come to plunder the house of Satan. He has come to deliver those who by fear of death were held captive to Satan. Hebrews chapter 2 says, It is the arrival of the strong man, not the arrival of an ally of Satan. Christ corrects in wisdom even his enemies with a simple parable to make a strong point. Satan is not divided. Satan is defeated. The strong man has come. We see another aspect, though, of Christ's overcoming power. He corrects in wisdom, and Christ completely forgives. Christ completely forgives. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, we want to get to verse 29, right? What's the, what's the eternal sin? We'll get there. But we need to see what comes first. We need to see what Jesus establishes in His coming all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Christ completely forgives. He forgives every kind of person. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. There's, there's no person, there's no human being that is excluded from the offer of Christ for the forgiveness of sins in His name by the accomplishment of redemption at the cross. Christ forgives every kind of person. Christ forgives every category of sin. 
There, there is the, the heinous things, the heinous things that the sinner does, that we all are guilty of, whether it was in action or in thought. We spent an, a, nearly an entire year, Pastor Don spent outlining and teaching us the, the Ten Commandments so that we could see the fullness of the indictment against every person in the law of God. And, and we all stand utterly guilty of heinous sins against a loving God. And there is nothing outside the forgiveness of Christ. He forgives every category of sin, no matter what you have done, even what you have said and blasphemy against Christ, He forgives. He forgives. It's full. It's complete. He's kind and He is tender to those who come in humble repentance, seeking Him. Christ forgives every category of sin. And perhaps here again today or under the sound of my voice, there's some that think, you know, I can't come to Christ. You don't know what I have done. No, Christ says he forgives every sin. Run to him, flee to him, and you will find in him a refuge. You will find forgiveness in Christ. He forgives past, present, and future sin. All sins will be forgiven. All sins will be forgiven. What we've done in our past, what we do on a consistent basis out of the, out of the horrible flesh that we have that dwells within us, and, and even the sins that we have not yet committed, they're, they're forgiven in Christ. There's a comprehensiveness to what Christ does. He comes to forgive. He is not an ally of Satan, the one who destroys. He is the Redeemer who comes to deliver from Satan through forgiveness of sins. Christ corrects in wisdom. Christ completely forgives. But we also see that Christ condemns the unrepentant. Christ condemns the unrepentant. These scribes that come down and they have an official indictment of Christ, they are hardened in their pride and in their self-righteousness. They're religious, which is so frightening. They're religious and they're hardened in their pride and in their self-righteousness. And so Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. The questions start to burn in our mind. Well, how do we know? How do I know if, if that's me? Well, likely, if, if you're asking the question, it's not. If you're concerned about having committed the sin, it's not. But the point of Jesus' indictment and the point of other strong warning passages like Hebrews chapter 6, right? It's, it's not there for us to figure out who has committed the unpardonable sin, who has committed the eternal sin. 
It's, it's there for us to be warned. It's there for us to recognize that repentance does not come easy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, Paul tells Timothy to teach those who, are, who have been entangled by the snare of the devil if God may give them repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. And the hardened sinner says, you know what, I'm going to go on and sin, and then I'll make a decision if and when I need to repent. No, you can't. It comes from God, and that kind of attitude is the kind of attitude that the scribes and Pharisees have, and that Christ indicts as a hardened rebellion against Him. We have to be warned. This is not something to tinker with. My repentance, my turning to Christ is not something for me to tinker with and and to assume presumptuously and blasphemously that I can control when and how I come to the Son of God? No, today is the day of salvation. We cannot dismiss the strength of these warnings. And yet, there's another aspect that this passage emphasizes for us, and it's that Christ is the one who's making the indictment. Only Christ knows when and how this happens. But the point is that Christ has the authority to declare it. And he's doing it here on earth. He's doing it, he's doing it to those who, the way John MacArthur defines this sin, those who have a hardened and willful unbelief in spite of the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit. He's doing it on earth as a demonstration of his authority. He has the authority to condemn the unrepentant. And by attributing Christ's work to Satan, the scribes were turning away from the gospel. They were turning away from Christ. And they were saying, this is of Satan. They were calling good evil and evil good. And that is the height of rebellion against God. It's important for us to notice that they, the scribes, the Jews, they had unusual light. They had the entire Old Testament scriptures that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, declare the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. They had light upon light upon light. In fact, they even searched the Scriptures because they they thought that in them they had eternal life. They were looking for eternal life. And Jesus says in John chapter 5, but the Scriptures are what are about me. And so if you believe Moses, you would believe me. A hardened and willful unbelief 
in spite of the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 6, just so that we can, we can understand the significance of, of this warning. Hebrews chapter 6. And the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience and clarifying the sufficiency of Christ in fulfilling the law. But he has this warning. In verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they, are, they crucify once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now he gives an illustration. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to, be, be, and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Jesus uses a similar illustration in the parables. But what we're seeing in, in that Hebrews passage is, is that there are people that have received blessing upon blessing upon blessing, not converted. But in God's good providence, they have received blessing upon blessing upon blessing. They might have even had religious experiences, yet ultimately they are unrepented and unconverted and turn away. And there is a warning. There is a warning to sitting and receiving the blessings of God and not submitting to the will of God. And ultimately, we will all stand before Christ. And Christ has the authority. He knows all. He is just and He is righteous. Christ has the authority to condemn the unrepentant. It is a sobering thing to fall into the hands of of our great God. But praise the Lord that in Christ, those who have turned to Him for forgiveness, the verdict is what we read in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. So let us be warned. Let us be warned that Christ has power, He has authority, He knows the hearts of man. But let us take comfort. If you're in Christ, take comfort. Rest in the overcoming power of Christ. Rejoice in His counsel to you. Rejoice in that He opened your heart to receive the gospel.
Well, let's come now to the end of this passage. We've seen the opposition to Christ. We've seen the overcoming power of Christ. And those who follow, we recognize that opposition. We rest in Christ's overcoming power. And, and again, just to think about this in terms of a first century believer who's living in a world with entangled religious and political elements pushing against them in their faith in Christ. And Mark reminds them of the words of Christ. In Christ, your sins are forgiven. He forgives all. And Christ is the one in whom rests the final assessment. Rest in that. In the final portion this morning, we see the need to respond then in obedience to Christ. Again, we come to Christ's family. Verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Then a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Respond in obedience to Christ. Notice that his mother and brothers, again, they're sending for Christ. Christ, come, come to us. We think you need to come out of that house. We think you, you need to, to come and, and, and do our bidding, whereas those around Christ are sitting at his feet. And so a very simple question for us is, do we send for Christ or do we sit at the feet of Christ? Right? This is the, the Mary and Martha passage of Mark. Are we anxious to impose our will on Christ and try to get Christ to do what we think He needs to do for us, sending for Him and calling for Him and seeking Him out to, to do what we think we, we need Him to do? Or are we content and satisfied to sit at His feet? Notice that His mother and His brothers came. And it's important in a passage like this and in a region where we live to, to point out the fact that Mary as an intercessor, Mary as a sinless person is absolutely dismantled in a passage like this. It's not in Mary. She was a sinner in need of grace. It's in Christ that we have access to the Father and in Christ alone. And yet, as Christ clarifies His family, He, he doesn't utterly dismiss His family in the sense of, of neglecting them because at the cross, He cares for His mother even as He's dying. He simply is pointing out that his priority and those who, those who are closest to him are those who ultimately are submitted to the will of the Father. But in that picture of Jesus looking around at those who are sitting at his feet, 
And, and you know, you, the scene, uh, this is one of the beauties of the Gospels. Here, here are all these people around Christ, and, and he looks around at them, looking about all those who are sitting around him. What, can you imagine what that would have been like to be in that room with Christ, sitting at his feet? In affection, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. This is an expression of affection from Christ for his true followers. You are beloved by Christ. You're like his family. He loved his mothers. He loved his brothers. And he says, and I love those who are here at my feet. You're beloved by Christ. And as his family, we won't turn there this morning, but in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews calls us brothers with Christ who've been delivered from the fear of death that Satan held. As his family, you're not only beloved by Christ, but you are defended by Christ. He delivered you from the realm of darkness. He delivered you from the the tyranny of Satan, and he will protect you right into his very presence. You are his family. You're beloved by Christ, and you are defended by Christ. Those who sit at his feet are those whom he has conquered are those who have responded to his call, repent and believe the gospel. Christ's followers submit to God's will. What is God's will? Well, this could be a whole message in and of itself. But just to clarify a couple of things, First of all, God's will is that you repent and believe the gospel. That's God's will. And as we work and move through the scriptures, we find that God's will is that you reorient your life. That you reorient your life according to Christ's priorities. And so when we're talking about doing God's will, We're talking about doing what God has already revealed in His Word. And I I want to take you to just one passage to demonstrate that from the epistles in in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm just going to bring us here to make this point that doing God's will is reorienting our life according to Christ's priorities. And ultimately, those are expressed in the Ten Commandments. If we love Christ, we'll obey His commands, He tells us. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, regarding our redemption and our new life in Christ, in verse 2, Peter writes, we've been called so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
And then he goes on and expresses it negatively for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So if you want a list of what God's will is not, there it is. Your unregenerate life was sufficient for that. Look at verse 7. In contrast, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Well, we know it's God's will then that we pray out of sober-mindedness. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's a summary of what God's will is. Be sober-minded and pray and love one another and use the gifts that you have in Christ to serve one another for the glory of God. Christ followers submit themselves to the will of God. Reorient your life according to Christ's priorities. Are you a follower of Christ? Do you sit at His feet? Are you satisfied in Him? God, God in His kindness, He sent Christ to conquer our wills, our rebel, rebellious wills, and to conform us to His glorious will as we await the day when we will see Him. Lord, we thank You for Your kindness to us in Jesus. We thank You for sending Christ to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, to redeem us from our sins. And we express our love to You and we pray that You would help us to live out our love to you in obedience to you this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.